Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Happy New Year. It's good to see you all here today. We haven't been here since the 19th, getting over a COVID case in the house, which wasn't too bad, but had us on quarantine, including for Christmas Eve. Uh, we watched from home, and I could see the back of, we could see the back of your heads, <laughs> including some family members that were joining from afar. It was good to see who we could see. <laughs> and uh, I hope that you were blessed by the little thing I recorded uh, for those of you who are here, um, I had heard that poem that I used in the message uh, listening to Raquel's Christmas concert and so moved by it um, that I went to research it. And I would love to see that poem turned into a song. So maybe someday, with God's help, I'll try that. <laughs> but don't hold your breath. <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you about renewing the covenant today. It was going to be a children's message, and I was going to start with the example of the covenant of marriage. Are there any children in the house? I think they're all sleeping late for New Year's Day festivities. So I'll just combine it with what I was going to um, bring to you all. Well, I'd like you to consider Deuteronomy 29 for a few minutes this morning. It records Moses leading the people and renewing their commitment to God before they entered the promised land. So the setting is Moab. It's across the Jordan from Jericho, and they've defeated the area nations that had tried to hinder or, or fight against them. They defeated them, and they've been wandering for 40 years, the original covenant had been made at Horeb. It's called Horeb in this passage. We also know it as Sinai, the mountain of God, 40 years before this. And after this covenant renewal on the plains of Moab, Moses is called up to the top of a mountain to die. And Joshua is the one who takes over as leader of the people, and he leads them across the Jordan to begin the conquest of the promised land. And so that most of the people at Moab have been children or not yet born when the original Sinai covenant was made. So this renewal was a reminder of that covenant, the covenant that was supposed to be binding and meant to be binding on Israel from then on, for generation after generation. So each generation needing to renew the covenant. And in fact, there's pieces of that covenant that are renewed in the feasts of Israel uh, the Passover feasts and other feasts that they would annually celebrate to remind themselves of the relationship that God, the special relationship that God had given to them. I want you to think about what a covenant is for a minute. It's a commitment to relationship, an agreement where two parties bind themselves to one another to belong to each other, to be there for each other, to be loyal and faithful to each other, to care for each other according to the terms of the agreement. It always involves conditions that each party commits to, the covenant. Things each party agrees to and consequences if the covenant is broken. There are examples of ancient covenants have been found by archaeologists in the Middle East, by some of the nations around 
there in the Middle East. Those usually involve binding agreements between a king and his people. The king promising to lead the people, to protect them, and the people promising to obey the king, to pay taxes, to provide their sons and daughters, to serve the king as soldiers and servants and workers. And those ancient covenants, they involve blessings and warnings. What would happen if the people refused to obey the king? Sacrifices and the shedding of blood were always involved, invoking the favor or wrath of the gods those pagan people worshipped, depending on whether the covenant was kept or broken. I want you to think about a, a modern type of covenant we have. Today, the most co common covenant we're familiar with is the marriage covenant. Christian marriage involves a commitment between a man and a woman who give themselves to each other in a binding relationship for life. Listen to the terms of the covenant contained in the traditional marriage vows. I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, or if you were the woman, you'd say husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. You hear the conditions of the covenant in there, involving two parties, a man and a woman, giving themselves exclusively to each other, to belong to each other, to be there for each other, to be loyal and faithful to each other, to love and to cherish each other until death, no matter the circumstances, according to the terms of the covenant. Now, Christian marriage is supposed to be an image or picture of the covenant between God and his people. That God's commitment to his people is everlasting. And he expects his people to respond to that everlasting love by loving him forever. And so Christian marriage is supposed to be an icon or a picture of that relationship between God and his people, Christ and his church. I know marriage doesn't always work out. And, and uh, there are reasons that people break the covenant or depart from the covenant. And um, some of those reasons are less than you know, what God wants. And so sometimes we need healing for the brokenness even that comes from the breaking of our human covenants. And actually, that's not very different from what happened between Israel and God. In the case of the covenant at Sinai, God himself entered into a binding relationship with Israel and the, the people of Israel. The covenant was sealed by the blood of sacrificial animals. And God committed himself to take the people of Israel from all the nations of the earth and make them his own special people. And he promised to love them, provide for them, protect them, bless them, and make them fruitful and successful in all they did, and to make them a blessing to all other peoples. And for their part, Israel committed to worship God alone, to obey his law and will and follow him wherever he led them. Whether they kept or broke the covenant, the consequences were spelled out in terms of blessings and curses. Those are listed in Leviticus, in the original covenant of Sinai. And they were read to the people again at this covenant renewal ceremony on the plains of Moab, and they're recorded in Deuteronomy 28. So if you have your Bible, 
And you've read this little section that Tom read from Deuteronomy 29. You flip back a page and you see the blessings and curses for whether the people kept or didn't keep the covenant. If they broke the covenant, there was a way the people could receive forgiveness. But if they persisted in disobedience, the curses would come upon them. And the history of Israel shows that very thing happening. God was faithful, but the people kept breaking the covenant. They waffled back and forth between loyalty to God and loyalty to the false idols of the nations around them. They sinned by being unfaithful in the way they treated each other, becoming increasingly unjust and wicked in their dealings with each other. And eventually their sins piled so high and they became so hardened and evil that God resolved to hand them over to the consequences of their sin. It's interesting, if you, if you heard that reading from Deuteronomy 29, it says, Moses says to the people, uh, your eyes have been closed to this very day. To this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years I led you through the wilderness, your clothes didn't wear out or did, did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. And I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. You see, it's a picture of people being surrounded by blessing, supernatural blessing, proof and evidence daily surrounding them that God is real, that the real God of heaven is on their side, blessing them, that he's made them his people, and they're blind to it. They're like, well, where's all this coming from? I mean, isn't that like a lot of people in the world? Maybe most people. Given life, the gift of life, surrounded by blessings, that despite hardships they're going through, there's many good things that are happening to them, but they're blind and oblivious to the God in, who, in whom they have their being, who upholds them in existence. They're blind and oblivious to him. So, consequences for sin came on them. Sometimes in the form of oppression, sometimes in illness and plague, sometimes in failure and defeat, just as the terms of the covenant had promised would happen. They were even sent into exile in Babylon, if you know the history of, of, of Israel, that they had this series of leaders and judges and kings, and, and they were up and down in their faithfulness. It's kind of a story of sometimes trusting, some, uh, more often not. And they keep going down and down. And finally, the consequences of their sin build up so much that they are ejected from the land. But God didn't abandon them completely. He remembered his covenant and afterwards restored them to their land. And yet they kept on sinning, kept on falling short. See, in their own strength, they were simply not righteous enough to attain to the goodness of God. Through all Israel's history, you see the God of heaven committed to a people, engaged with them, seeking them, calling to them to live in his love and blessings, to turn away from their own self-will and evil ways because this ruins their lives, calling them to live in trust and obedience to him because his ways are just and right and the way of true blessing. You see God preparing something that would bless not just those people, but all peoples. 
And yet they couldn't keep that covenant. They just couldn't keep it. They didn't have the strength. And so God sent word through the prophets that a new covenant was coming, which would be far better than the old one. The one at Sinai or its uh, recommitment there on the plains of Moab, the one rehearsed by the people of Israel, the Jewish people, every year from then on to this, a better covenant than the old Passover. Jeremiah 31 records the Lord's promise. You might have heard it before. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new relationship, a new commitment with my people. That with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. You see that marriage symbolism in the covenant between God and his people? They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now that's the new covenant that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When he took the cup on the night of the Last Supper, and he gave thanks and gave it to his disciples and said, drink this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember old covenants were always sealed by a sacrifice of blood? Jesus' new covenant is sealed by a sacrifice of blood, his own blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many for what? Does anybody remember? For the forgiveness of sins. That's right. He is the fulfillment. He is the new covenant. By faith in Christ, we're brought into right relationship with Almighty God. God has offered to be our God and invites us to be his people. And he asks that we trust his son. That's it. Trust his son and follow him in obedience. The evidence of our trust. And he gives all who do that the right to become his children. Children of God. Now, it's not because of our own goodness or righteousness that we're given this offer of relationship. Far from it. We are just like the people of ancient Israel. We were, we were also slaves of sin who needed someone to set us free. In fact, most people don't really come to Jesus for salvation until they re realize, I need salvation. I'm in trouble because of my sins. My righteousness is really not that impressive. In fact, the more righteous I try to become, the more self-righteousness I project, the worse my relationships around me are becoming. Because our righteousness doesn't cut it. Estranged from God, what are we going to come up with? Just the stuff that comes out of the sinful nature. And we may even become proud of it, so proud that we become obnoxious to the people around us. We're always right, they're always wrong. That's what self-righteousness looks like. An inability to be humble and recognize one's own weaknesses and limitations, one's need for the Savior. But here's what happens. When we live in self-righteousness and under the law and in our own strength instead of in God's, our sins start to pile up. 
And maybe, just maybe, we will respond to the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, working in us to show us you are not good enough to get to me, meaning to God. But I've made a way for you to get to me by becoming one of you and shedding blood in your place. So you don't have to die, so you can be forgiven, including for your self-righteousness. That you can let go of it. You can stop trying. You can rest in me and let my righteousness be your strength. Yeah, hallelujah, indeed. What a relief to be able to let go of that. Striving and striving and never being able to get there and just becoming obnoxious like the Pharisees because of it. We have a Savior who knows our weakness and took it upon himself. When we were slaves to sin, we needed someone to set us free. We can't keep God's law on our own. We fall short of his glory. You know, our personal story before we come to Christ may be compared to the ancient story of Israel wandering in the wilderness through its years, trying to be a kingdom, living under the law, experiencing the slavery of sin and its dreadful consequences. And like Israel, that prepared many people the constant things that were going on in their life that meant they never did quite reach the promises of God, the fulfillment of God, the victory of God, the peace of God. Yearning. That's why they were yearning for a Savior, because they didn't have him yet. And those who understood this about themselves, looking forward to him coming, when John the Baptist came and he preached that baptism of repentance, Meaning, listen, your own righteousness isn't enough. Every one of you, even though you have the name of Israel, you need to change your ways and change your hearts, change your minds. You need to be washed clean in your sins. You've got them. You need to be washed clean. And they went through that rite of baptism there at the River Jordan with him, and they were ready with eyes open to see the Savior as he came on the scene, bringing the new covenant. There's the folks who refused that, who said, no, 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 we're good enough. We're keeping the law. We are, in fact, we're keeping the law so much to the nth degree that we don't even go outside of our home on the Sabbath day except for a little tiny Sabbath walk. But inwardly full of sin, if you know Jesus' rebuke of those hyper-religious folks, you know that what he said about them wasn't pretty? But he was trying to reveal to them their own hearts so they too would repent. And you know it says that after the resurrection, many Pharisees put their faith in him. You know, they kind of got it. We are not going to be able to get to God on our own strength. So our personal story is often like them. We struggle to be good. We hope that by our goodness we're going to get to God, that when we die somehow and we stand before him on the scales of good and evil, he'll look at us and he'll say, well, your good deeds are a little bit more than your evil deeds, so I'll let you in here. And so we delude ourselves that our goodness is going to overcome our need for forgiveness. And it doesn't work that way. Before a holy God, we're all unholy. And wicked and vile, and he knows the core of our hearts and the things that motivate us, and he's not fooled by our outward show. He knows our inner fears and our maliciousness and, and our thievery and the way we've committed, unf been unfaithful in the agreements and relationships we've been in, and our need for forgiveness, our need to have that all paid for, our slavery to it. And so he sends away 
and his son who comes and dies in our place, shedding his blood to initiate a new covenant, a new covenant in which our sins are forgiven and washed away, and God pours his Holy Spirit into us simply by faith in Jesus. And it's by the Holy Spirit that his laws are written into our hearts and minds that we start to want to do his will. I just read the testimony of a, a guy named Christopher Ewan who was into a wild and, and crazy lifestyle. He grew up in a non-Christian home, atheist parents. And when he went to college, he got way into a rebellious life and into drugs and partying and, and uh, sexual liberation and all the things that go with that. And his life, his mother became a Christian. And she started to pray for her son. And then his father became a Christian. And the two of them together. And he had grown up in a home where there wasn't much love. And where his mom and dad were constantly fighting. And where there was no peace. And uh, he kind of despised his parents. And he thought Christianity was just for sissies and wimps. But his mom and dad began to pray for him, and their marriage began to be healed, and, and they started loving him in a new way. And he wasn't receptive to it. But the consequences of his sin started to pile up. Pile up and pile up and pile up. He got sick, and he finally got arrested, and then he got thrown in jail. And in jail, feeling like he had reached the, the what is the word they use, rock bottom, he was in his jail cell, a cell just looking around. He happened to see what looked like a new book sitting on top of the trash can. And it was a Gideon's Bible. And he picked it up and he started to read. His mom and dad had been praying for his salvation for years. And his mom, it says his mom sometimes would fast for days on end. And every week she would fast, and she was seeking and interceding for her sons to be saved. She had another son, too. And he started to read that Bible, and it started to convict him. He started with the Gospel of Mark, the good news about Jesus Christ. And you know, most of the Gospels, all four of them, are about Jesus' death and resurrection. They're about what he goes through to get to the cross and then conquering death. And all the symbolism that leads up to that and points to that. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world to establish a new way for us to relate to God, to be set free from our sins. And he started to yearn for God, and he, started, he, he was taken away. Some of his idols were taken away from him, right? He couldn't party anymore. He didn't have the, the constant music to fill his heart with the pounding rhythm so he wouldn't think about his em emptiness. It was all taken away from him. And with the absence of those idols, he began to realize, I know in, in God, I don't need him. And I, don't, I can let go of that. And he let go of one idol after another, one idol after another, laying them down. As the Holy Spirit began to fill him, and he wanted God. Putting his faith in Jesus, having God's laws written on his heart and mind to make him righteous in a way that he could never achieve in his own strength. And because of his change of character, he was released from prison early, and he went straight into Moody Bible College, where he got a degree, and he continued to work on it. He got a degree in ministry. Some one of his prison mates, as he started to leave Bible study in prison, said to him, I think you're called to ministry. He's like, what, me? 
And he got out, and he actually went all the way to earn a Doctor of Ministry degree, and he's a, a, an international speaker now who's written many books, and you can find his website, ChristopherEwan.com, and find out all about him. And he's just an example of what really any of us is like as sinners who need uh, salvation. And maybe our sins aren't as spectacular as some people, but every one of us is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody needs to have, a, if they want to get connected to God and have true life and live in the love of God and live forever, the only way to do it is through trust in Jesus. And when we put our faith in him, he gives us the Holy Spirit and he starts to write into us what we can never do in our own strength. To write law, God's laws on our hearts and minds to make us like God, to make us true children of our Father in heaven. Not children of the devil anymore who do the devil's will. We've been crucified with Christ. And when we take communion today, because we're about to move to that, when you're in Christ, when you've been baptized, when in a step of faith you, you have put yourself forward and said, I want to be included in what? Jesus has done for me. Or maybe your parents baptized you when you were little, and you need to own that for yourself. That's what John, happened to John Wesley. He was baptized when he was little. But his, he struggled so long to achieve his own righteousness to try to please God and failed, 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 and fa finally came to despair. <laughs> I'm hopeless and worthless. I can't get there. And it was in that place that he was ready and open to hear the good news. Christ died for him too, and he was forgiven, not because he had earned it, not because he'd finally achieved righteousness, but because Jesus had died for him. That's when his heart was strangely warmed, and he felt he too was forgiven. That's when the Holy Spirit came on him in a new and powerful way, and he began to preach the gospel out into the streets and fields and factories of England and sent preachers to America with the same spirit to initiate that huge revival that changed so many people in those days two, three hundred years ago. Do the math. Not quite either one or the other. <laughs> See, just at the right time, when we were all powerless to save ourselves, God sent his son in the form of a man to initiate the new covenant. God loves us so much. We enter this new covenant not by any work of our own, but simply by trusting in that man. You know, each Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to renew, to remember and renew this covenant, renew our relationship with God, to rejoice in Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection brings us forgiveness and a place at his side in heaven. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClellan. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org.
hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.